know he can get the job, but can he do the job? The chief data officer may be the riskiest job in today's C-suite. Getting the job is tough, for sure, but doing the job is the real challenge. Small wonder that the average tenure of a CDO is just 18 months. And today, it's about much more than passing compliance audits. A CDO has to use the data to drive revenue and growth. Why is this such a high-risk role, and what does it take to succeed? Being a CDO takes a lot. It's about organizational fit, setting expectations, and planting the right seeds. More importantly, it's about demonstrating your value time and again. So today we're talking to Peter Jackson, a six-time CDO and co-founder and director of Carruthers & Jackson. We unpack how you can become that superstar CDO. If Peter's name sounds familiar, it should. His business partner, Caroline Carruthers, has also appeared on Data Radicals. And if you haven't listened to her episode, make sure you add it to your podcast queue. The two of them have written multiple books, including the Chief Data Officer's Playbook. I sat down with Peter to learn how CDOs can succeed, from finding the right company to executing on the job. So let's dig in. Welcome to Data Radicals, a show about the people who use data to see things that nobody else can. This episode features an interview with Peter Jackson, co-founder and director at Carruthers & Jackson. In this episode, he and Satyan discuss the importance of organizational fit for CDOs, finding quick and actionable wins, and navigating relationships with vendors. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. What if we told you that data governance can drive real business results? This white paper from Gardner shows you how. Go to alation.com slash DAG to get your free copy of Gardner's guide. It's called Adaptive Data and Analytics Governance to Achieve Digital Business Success. And it's yours for the downloading. Check it out today. You are a self-described first-generation CDO and therefore almost definitionally a change agent. And you're coming into these institutions in some cases where at least there are some folks that don't want to change. How how do you address that? And how do you think about that problem? Because it's sort of tough to give people motivation if they don't have it. The chief data officer is becoming increasingly recognized as the change, as the agent of change. It's a channel through which change will occur if unleashed. How do you how do you overcome the naysayers, the, the, the reticence? I think it's quite pragmatic. You have to understand what that pushback is and where it's coming from. So, you know, doing a doing a review, a survey of your stakeholders to find out where your promoters are and where your detractors are is very important. But I think you've you've got to certainly in my experience is is creating that story that people can understand. Don't talk about you no know, regression and anomalies and clustering and data science, and don't talk about data governance. Put it in stories that they can understand. And that they then will will perhaps buy in more to what you're talking about, rather than thinking you're talking about some Harry Potter kind of stuff that's over here and is not relevant to them, is unattainable. So I think the first thing is to make it clear and explicit through the storytelling. I think the next thing is to demonstrate the art of the possible. You then have to deliver actions on top of that. So you need to get after some early use cases that will show value of some of the things you're talking about and to show that these things are possible. Whether it's delivering significant or early evidence operational efficiency through using data in a different way or data techniques in a different way 
or whether you're actually increasing the bottom line or reducing overheads or acquiring new customer or increasing customer wallet or reducing churn of customer, you need to do something fairly early on to prove that you can have an impact. Because if you start having an impact for your stakeholders, that starts to shift the culture. It starts to get them buying into what it is you're talking about. As Peter said, there will be people who are skeptical of a CDO. But remember, you have allies even if it might seem like you don't. Well, no, I think Caroline and I, in our, in our most recent book, in the second edition of the Chief Data Officer's Playbook, broke down the, uh, the Gartner hype cycle further. We talked about it in the first book. We broke it down further. And right at the start, there has to be a trigger for an organization to appoint somebody like me. Somebody in the organization has made that trigger of saying, we need a Chief Data Officer. So... I don't think I've ever walked in somewhere and found a uniform blank wall of disengagement of naysayers. <laughs> There's always somebody who is your early promoter. And that is somebody who's probably he said, you know what, we need a chief data officer, or we need a chief um, scientific officer. So I think latching on to your stakeholders, the people who will promote you. And when I talk about, you know, demonstrating the art of the possible, going after the low hanging fruit, delivering business value quickly the quick wins, which my team hate me talking about. They need to be demonstrating the art of the possible. They need to deliver business value quickly. They need to be of value to the business and to stakeholders and to do them for a stakeholder who's then going to publicize the success that you have delivered. That's really important. So I think that perhaps I painted too dark a picture earlier on, Satin, that there's always somebody in an organization who's going to promote and support you. Yeah, and I would imagine that as a person that's done this multiple times, Part of your interviewing that institution when you're trying to decide whether it's the appropriate place for you is to determine whether or not there's a sufficient organizational will to make the change, at least within the people who have the power. How do you qualify for that? What do you ask when you're interviewing that company? When you go for that interview or when you're, you're applying into an organization for the role of chief data officer, ask the questions. You know, some of those questions are along the lines of you know, what sort of chief data officer do you really want? Do you actually want a chief data officer who's going to focus on data governance and data management? Or do you want a chief data officer who's more actually you know, a chief data scientist? So make sure that the organization understands what it is they actually want and that you fit that. Because if there's confusion there, it won't work well. And that's why I think, or one reason I think a lot of chief data officers over the last three or four years have failed and their tenures have been short. The organization has thought they want this, and they've gone out and they've actually got this. Well, they thought they want this, but what they really needed was this, and they've gone out and they've got that. So getting that alignment and being, you know, asking the right questions to understand what is your aspirations? What is it you want to do with the data? What are your biggest problems you're trying to solve? What are the things we've got to get after first? That will give you an indication of the sort of chief data officer they need. I think then asking very transparent questions such as, where does this role report into? Because if chief data officer is reporting into a role that's too junior, you can't effect change from a junior position. You have to be very close to the COO or the CEO to effect change across an organization. So being very clear and asking those questions, who does this role report into? I think also asking the question is, who is promoting this role? Who are, who are the stakeholders I'm working for? Where, where are we going to deliver business value? And understanding how senior and where they fit in the organization is important. I think one of the other questions to ask is, where does data fit in the gateways of your change? 
Because if data sits in things like the Business Design Authority and the Technical Design Authority and the Change Management Committee, if data is in those gateways of change, then that will give you an idea of how promoted and supported and what the appetite is for change through data. Those are phenomenal questions. And does that change for a first-time CDO relative to a multi-time CDO? I mean, I would imagine that the first-timers are just trying to get the title and the job in many cases. And you know, look, every one of us has careers and everybody wants to grow into it. And I remember when I was trying to get my you know, first job as a VP, you, know, you, you think about those things, you think about those titles. And so it, I can imagine that at those moments, you wouldn't be as focused on qualification. So, so what bits of advice would you give those individuals that are just about to start? And I, or I guess maybe, is there any different advice that you would give those individuals? It's sound advice for anybody looking for a job change or or a career promotion or a bit of a leap into the dark is go in with your eyes open. And it may not, you may not get the right answers or the perfect answers that you would like to those questions, which we've just discussed. But as long as you're aware of the challenges you're going to face, and if you still want that job title and step into that role, then at least you will understand what problems you're going to face and what you've got to overcome. I think that you know, just getting swept away by almost by the excitement and the emotion of landing your first role as a chief data officer that could be dangerous. Yeah, it's so hard to turn down though. Yeah, the, the ring, right? I think if, even if you found yourself rapidly in an in a uncomfortable position, oh, this isn't quite what I thought it was, you know, and you're thinking, wow, how am I going to make this work? You need to find some real deliverables that you can deliver quickly. You need to get those things onto your CV. You need to have some successes that you can talk about, however hard or perhaps unrealistic or awkward the situation you find yourself in. As data professionals, there must be something that you can do that proves value or proves worth for your time in that engagement. Yeah, I love that advice because I think it. I think it's often true that data professionals find themselves in a circumstance where the organization's eyes are bigger than their stomachs. And the organization doesn't realize, everybody talks about data, but people don't realize that the human transformation is more expensive than the actual technological transformation. In some sense, think that the technological transformation is all that needs to happen. And so this, this notion of saying, look, it doesn't really matter whether or not you've got fans or detractors or whatever, but you just got to go win. And you've got to go do something that is a quick win is really sage advice. What are those opportunities? Like, can you give our listeners some examples of what some of these quick wins have looked like in your own career? And, you know, what, or even what are some of the quick failures? <laughs> if, if I may, before I answer that question, I think I would, I would echo Caroline here and say, you will always find some data cheerleaders in the organization. Go and find them because they will support and help you. There will always be some people who actually want to get on the data agenda and have some good ideas. What are some of the quick wins? I think um, sniff out the spreadsheets. Wherever you find a spreadsheet in a business process, that's an opportunity for a quick win because you might be able to automate that process by using some technologies, by teaching people new skills, giving them new tools. And that will inevitably get rid of the cut and paste. It will reduce data errors, it will speed up the process, it will make it more cost effective and more cost efficient. So sniff out the spreadsheets because go after them. Ooh, we can, let's just go del- deep on this one because I love this one. So what is it about, so there are spreadsheets and then there are spreadsheets. Yeah. Right. A- and so how do you know what you found a spreadsheet that is, you know, a ripe target for chief data officeriness? 
I, <laughs> I think if you've got if you've got a if you've got a spreadsheet that is running a complicated data process, that is where you need to start. Big corporates, especially which are regulated, should not be running their business processes on spreadsheets. Spreadsheets, kind of as you alluded to, there are an amazing tool. I mean, they're, they're great. Accountants and actuaries love a spreadsheet. That's fine, but don't run business processes on spreadsheets. There are many tools out there to automate data flows, and I'm not talking about RPA. RPA is a complete red herring that will actually just rebuild your spreadsheet processes in a technology that doesn't rebuild the business process. But think about some of the technologies that you can deploy for automating those processes where the spreadsheets are sitting. I love this spreadsheet concept because I think that on some level, one of the things that I've observed is that almost every application or every process starts as a spreadsheet because it's the simplest way to get going in almost anything. I mean, obviously, there's some things like financial, which maybe day one you start with some accounting software, but by and large, everything starts as a spreadsheet. And so this idea of find the spreadsheets in, in particularly complicated ways is, I think, a really wonderful of advice. What are the other areas? Data visualizations. I see an awful lot of people or organizations doing data visualizations and they're sort of hand-built, they're crafted, they take a long time to build. You know, whether these are, and often they go into, into PowerPoint presentations for reports to boards or to you know stakeholders. I think automating those and, and bringing the data together properly behind them so they can be interactive dashboards rather than something that's static in a PowerPoint, I think that's a big win. I think that that enables uh, stakeholders and um, senior execs to understand the data, to interrogate the data better than having it in a PowerPoint, which you can't interact with. You know, you're really reading the story that's presented to you rather than investigating that story yourself. So I think that that data visualizations is another space. Other low-hanging fruit is Again, echoing my colleague Caroline, you know, when she talks about coffee and cake, sit down with your stakeholders, get them a cup of coffee and talk to them about their business problems. And if you can get them to say, if you can pick up that moment, they said, if only I could. Now, that might be if only I could make this process faster or if only I could predict how our customers are going to behave next month. There's your low hanging fruit. One of my mentors and longtime board member, Dave Kellogg, he's a marketer and he talks about people are willing to buy from you if, and he says, the first thing is they think they, they need to believe you understand their problem. And then they need to like you. And then they need to be able to believe that you have a solution, but it's really in that order. And the solution is actually only, you know, the last mile of the circumstance, because if they like you and they believe you, if they understand you, then they'll give you more of, of their time. And I think that that's a you know, particularly human element of this. I want to go back to one other thing that you talked about, though, because you mentioned a title that I'd never heard before in the context of a non-basic science-based institution, with his, which is this chief scientific officer. Is that a title that you're hearing more and more of, or when does that title come up? Because I have not, I've not encountered that. I think I may be sort of trailing that one a bit early, maybe misleading you slightly. I think I've only heard of that in one circumstance. I think what we are hearing about is the chief data science officer. And I think that we are going to hear that increasingly. I think over the next three or four years, as we move, as organizations have have got the the fundamentals of their data right, we're going to be looking more and more into that value add. In other words, okay, we've now got our data governed and understood and managed properly and owned. 
How do we get value out of it? And that's going to be the analytics and the data science. So I think we're going to see a shift in titles away from a pure CDO to CDAO or a chief data science officer. I, I actually love this concept of a chief scientific officer because science is a process and data is an object. And so if you're the officer of data, you're officiating this like non-animate thing. Whereas if you're uh, an officer of science, right, you're actually furthering a way of thinking and a process of thinking. So, you know, when you said it, I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's actually super interesting. And actually, that's what we, what we all ought to be striving for. Yeah. And I think, I think in some of those organizations that are what I would call data native, in other words, the data really is what they do. You know, it's not asset management, it's not property management, it's not recruitment or whatever. You know, they are really around data. And you know, the easy examples there are Airbnb and Uber, for example. They don't, hotel, don't own hotels, they don't own vehicles, they own data. I think in those organizations, the role of a chief scientific officer is probably right. Another large part of the CDO's job is navigating relationships with vendors. Peter has worked as a CDO, as a client, and as a vendor. He walked us through his perspective on how CDOs can make the most of their vendor relationships and choose the best tools for their organizations. Chief data officers spend a lot of time talking to vendors, a lot of whom we don't want to talk to. Unless you've got a very good gatekeeper, a lot of your time is spent fielding off vendors or talking to vendors. So I think helping vendors understand how to approach a chief data officer would help us all. All vendors believe that their technology is a solution, the solution to the chief data officer's problems. <laughs> it's not. It's part of the solution. It will be one piece of the jigsaw that will not only of the, of the new technology, but believe me, the legacy technology as well, and the existing suppliers, and organizations need to understand that. Vendors need to understand that. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, obviously, you know, I and we are a vendor, not that this podcast is overtly focused in any way on being you know, a vendor, but we certainly have a point of view and a position. And I think about how many different technologies are both being born every single day, but of course exist. And you look at those data marketscapes, and there are hundreds of technology companies that are there. And as you mentioned, some percentage of a CDO's time is with vendors. How, how much time is that? How much do you estimate that would be for a given CDO? Is it? You could spend 365, 24-7 there are so many, absolutely. But what do you think the actual average is? I mean, you know, what was it? What has it been for you in your experience? I think it all depends on the stage you are in your transformation. If you're early in your transformation, if you're in that planning phase, you have to choose your partners. Now, whether that's you know uh, an SI or a third-party delivery company, professional services, or the technology, you have to choose who you're going to work with. So early in a transformation, you'll spend more time engaging with the market to understand what is there, what really will meet your problems, what blend of technologies and people you're going to need. I think that later in the transformation, or when you get to a more run rate, a run stage, that time spent with vendors would be much less. So I think that early on, you're going to be spending perhaps two, three days a week talking to vendors, thinking about vendors, thinking in your mind as to how they fit together, why that one and not that one. You'll be talking to your procurement team as, does that fit better for us if we procure it that way? Or would we have to compromise perhaps on the vendor because we want to procure things that way? It becomes quite complicated. So you will spend a lot of time with vendors or thinking about vendors early in the transformation stage. As you move later on, that will reduce. 
Because no, once you've chosen certain tools for certain jobs, you don't need to engage further with the market for a while. You've just got to get on and do the job. What, what are the success patterns and the failure patterns around choosing your vendor landscape? I think the first thing is really understanding whether you're going to be able to find the people, the resources to work with and support your selection. In other words, have you bought something that is so niche that you can't find the right people with the right skills to use that tool? So matching realistically a tool with a skill base and resources that you either have, you can train up, or you could attract. I I think that that's one thing. I think the next thing is truly understanding cost. I think a lot of organizations walk away from, uh, you know, after a period of time, they might think this was a bad decision because they didn't understand the full implication of cost when they were acquiring that technology in the first time around, and it becomes unsustainable for what they want to do with it. So there's two things. I think the third thing is when you're selecting a vendor, talk to them about roadmap. Make sure that this technology has a roadmap that matches your roadmap. In other words, the things you want to do tomorrow or next year, it's on the vendor's roadmap if it's not already in the technology. And then I think the final thing, and this will make you smile, Satya, and I think buying the technology from a vendor who can help you get value from it, who knows how you've got to organize yourself to get value from that technology, in other words, what operating model you need around it, that is a key to success. Because just buying the license doesn't deliver value. I remember early in my career at Oracle, there was a kiosk inside of the lobby for the executive briefing center in one of the main buildings, the, the, the executive building at Oracle. And there was a quote from Larry Ellison on it. And he says, people always, and you know, this is typically Larry quote, but it says something like, people always ask me, you know, whether or not I have the features that they want in order to build a business process that they want to build. And what I always tell them is that's the wrong question. You know, they should be asking us how they should be implementing the software and how they should be building the process to best do what it is that our customers do. And, and I think that's lost on lots of people because people see software as feature and functions and not necessarily as a way to transform their organizations. That quote resonates with me really, really firmly because so many times I've seen organizations buy a new technology and then rebuild their old processes in the new technology rather than actually thinking about this is new. How are we going to do this new? How are we going to do this different to get to where we need to be? Yeah. There's all these new fangled startups that are out there. And you mentioned a little bit about this concept of like, are there people to implement it? But then how do you decide that you're willing to take the risk of a new technology versus perhaps going with the thing that may be a little bit older, but perhaps a little bit better implemented? And how do you think about those decisions? I've long said nobody gets fired for hiring IBM. Got to overcome that mentality. There is... There is risk in going with a a new technology, with a new organization, with a young organization. But unless somebody somewhere is prepared to buy into that risk, how do these things ever get adopted and, and proven? So I think that you have to engage with some of these new technologies that you think are interesting, that you think are going to deliver, potentially deliver a significant difference for your organization. But you've got to engage with them in a low risk way. So getting into an engagement where you can do proof of values, where you can do joint investigation projects together, where you can get into an MVP together. In other words, you contain the risk, you contain the cost, you work in partnership. So it helps them build reputation. It helps you understand what the risks are and whether this can really deliver what it is it's talking about. I think that it is is a very sensible thing to do, to do a number of those every year to, to prod and test 
the new technologies. Building data literacy within your organization is also incredibly important. It's something Peter has a lot of experience with. I think building training within your organization is important. And at LNG, we built our data science boot camp, which wasn't to train data scientists. It was to train citizen data scientists. It was to make people in procurement, HR, in the lines of business, understand how you manage data, how you phrase a data science question, not to be afraid of math and not to be afraid of the technology. And I think that making it enjoyable and of value to them, so doing a proper learning needs assessment and doing the, 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 the longitudinal studies to see if it's impacting their work a year later is important. So you've got the empirical proof that it's worth doing. But also doing those boot camps in an environment where you're bringing, asking them to bring their business problems to you and try and solve them through the boot camp. So they're then taking value back to the business. That is what gets the training supported because then the line managers could say, that gave some value. That was a good investment. That worked. And I think if they're structured properly, you know, with the learning needs assessments, with the linear studies, then HR and learning teams can, can support and invest in them. You have to work with those teams. They are the professionals of training. For the audience to be able to understand what these things consist of, how long did that boot camp run for in terms of its dur- the duration of the actual course? They were eight-week courses. They were sort of side of desk. In other words, people didn't come to the course for eight weeks. They were doing the eight-week sessions, which involved a number of, of online and live sessions during the course of the eight weeks. And we ran one every eight weeks. Then the team took a break for a month, and then we'd run another one for another eight weeks. And we started with 20, a cohort of 20, and we ended up running three parallel cohorts of 20. So we were running 60 people through at a time. For the side of desk work, is it was it one hour a day that people were expected to dedicate? I think on average it was an hour a day, which you know, equates to five hours a week. Yeah. You know, perhaps with some time at the weekend or in the evenings of their own. And if they're invested, if the, if they doing something that they find interesting and enjoyable, then they will invest that time. And if it's for an eight-week period, it's not like you've got to do this for the next year. Five hours a week, eight weeks, that's about 40 hours. How much of that was practical and how much of that was sort of didactic, learning, training? Very roughly, Um, 50-50. It was, here is a technique, here is a tool, go and use it on your, on your use case. Yeah. So roughly 50-50. We, we wanted them to come away with something. The ultimate goal was something they would present back to their line manager and their teams back in the business. And that, to me, also seems quite practical, because if you think about sort of all of the vendor training that you're going to be able to get, if you think about the internal systems, you know, to be able to put together a 20-hour course sounds quite daunting. But then if you think about how much you can recycle and repurpose that could become something that could be really practical. So getting those curricula together could be also quite informative. We built a very structured curriculum. We polished it each time we went through. We refreshed it. But we also signposted a lot of other things. We didn't want to get into deep training in how to build a data visualization. That wasn't what it was for. We would signpost. If you want to learn more about using this technology or that technology, this is where the resources lie, You know, in their online university or in their citizen world or citizen lab, whatever they call it for those technologies. Because there is, let's face it, Sachin, there is a huge amount of resources out there available. People just need signposting to them, I think, very often. So as we as we cap off the show, I'd love to get your predictions. I'll let you choose. You can either make a prediction about where data is going to be going over the next five years, any topic you'd like to be able to talk about, or alternatively, you could leave us with some advice. Which path will you choose? 
<laughs> I think it's a prediction. Is I think that it's it's going to be that shift. I think we're going to see more and more of a shift into data science. I think the the, the job of the first generation CDO will eventually come into it, its twilight years as more organizations have done that, have actually understood their data, have cataloged it, are managing it properly. So I think in the next three or four years, we're going to be after value. People are really, really going to be after value in their data, partly because of the investment they've made in the role and the office at the CDO, but also because they now see those opportunities. And I think COVID has actually accelerated that. I think organizations now are understanding just how crucial good quality data is, having quick data that you can use quickly, having data you truly understand, increasing data literacy. I mean, I think the global population who've been uh, you know, trying to interpret the data around COVID on the evening news or from the, you know, whichever president or whichever prime minister has been presenting it, saying that doesn't make sense with the data they were presenting yesterday. We've all become more data literate. So I think that the urgency is getting there. If we were accelerating pre-pandemic, I think we're accelerating even faster coming out of that. Phenomenal stuff, Peter. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for joining Data Radicals. It's been wonderful to have you. Absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. As I reflect on my conversation with Peter, one thing stands out to me. Data is composed of numbers, but a data culture is composed of people. As Peter said, it's not just enough to choose the right tools. You have to choose the tools that fit your team's abilities and skill sets. In other words, you have to always think about how you are using your team to the best of their abilities. Because even though we deal with numbers, it's people that transform numbers into insights, actions, and victories. Thank you to Peter for joining us on this episode of Data Radicals. This is Satyan Sangani, co-founder and CEO of Alation. Thank you for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Chief data officers face an uphill battle. How can they succeed in making data-driven decisions, making the new normal? This State of Data Culture report has the answer. Download to learn why successful CDOs partner with their chief financial officer to drive meaningful change. Check it out at alation.com slash DCR3.